Morning, guys. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Matthew 27, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 10. Matthew 27, verses 3 to 10. We left off uh, verses 1 to 2, which explains, um, I guess, the end of Jesus' interaction with the um, religious leaders. So today we're going to be looking at 27, 3 to 10, and we're going to be looking at a really challenging text. We're going to be looking at the character Judas. And um, we're going to be looking at the high priest and the elders' roles and what many theologians call the most heinous sin in human history. If, if you recall, we're in the part in Matthew where Jesus has been sentenced to death. And moments by this, Jesus is asked by the religious leaders if he's the son of man. And I just want to read Jesus' response to you. He says in verse 64, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so, as you guys know, all through uh, Matthew, as Jesus is going through his ministry, the religious leaders are growing more and more impatient with him. They're growing more and more angry with him. Jesus is threatening all that they have and all that they have established. And they are coming up to the end of Matthew looking for any reason possible to have Jesus taken out. And so they're looking for reasons. They're trying to get Jesus to implicate himself and to say something. And that verse that I just read for you guys is Jesus admitting that he's God. He calls himself the son of man. And he says, the next time you see me, will be, um, I'll be seated at the right hand of power. And then I'll, I will return on the clouds of heaven. And he is ascribing to himself um, the fact that he's God. He's saying that he's God, and he's, and he's basically saying he's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies that talk about the return of the Messiah, in, basically in warrior mode, right? He's in Messiah mode here, but the next time you see me, I'll be in warrior mode, and I'm coming back with, uh, with angels, and we're going to do some stuff that you're not going to really like too much. We'll save that for another time. So this is what the leaders needed, and because um, he basically admits that he's God, this is how they respond in verses 65 to 66. He says, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? We now have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. And so the leaders are ready to ship Jesus off to Pilate, who is the Roman governor. And Pilate is actually the only one who has the legal authority to make the final decision about Jesus' crucifixion. And so they decide together as the Jewish leaders that they want to have Jesus crucified, and now they're, t they're going to send him to Pilate to, to where they're able to get that formal legal decision. And that's what Chris will be covering next week in his passage. And so here we are introduced in verse 3 to a character that we've seen a couple of times in the gospel, and his name is Judas. What do we know about him? Shout it out. What do, we, what do you guys know about Judas? He's a disciple. What else? He betrays Jesus. What else? Yeah, that's how he goes. He hangs himself. What's his last name? Iscaria. And what's his, what's his dad's name? His dad's name is, is Simon. Jude, he's called Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
Um, Judas was a common name. It's actually the Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Judah. And it's basically the same name as Jude. And so all through the New Testament, we actually meet three other Judes. Uh, one is the brother of Jesus. And so when the uh, various authors of the Gospels refer to him, they almost always use his full name, Judas Iscariot, so that you know who they're talking about. And then what they do is they also say, often in brackets or comma, the one who betrayed him or the one who betrayed Jesus or the betrayer, right? Um, he's mentioned five times in the Gospels. Or sorry, sorry. He's, he's mentioned in five different books of the Bible, which includes all four Gospels in Acts chapter 1, over 30 times, and at least half of them are mentioned by John. And it seems like John has a real... Um, desire to highlight Judas as the betrayer, because every time he mentions his name, it's always in a negative way. He always goes very far to mention that Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas was in charge of the money bag, as Jesus and the 12 ministered in different areas. Did you guys know that? He was the treasurer of the group, and yeah, that's pretty much all we know about him. And so I'd say after Peter and John... Judas might be the most common or maybe the most popular disciple. Um, if you've ever been to a youth retreat or some type of Christian bonfire, the question of what happened to Judas, right? It comes up very often. People often want to know, where is he? Did he go to hell? Also related is suicide a sin, right? This is like usually, this is like tier one of Christian questions um, that you get asked or that people discuss and people love to get into um, conversation about him. And so this morning, I want, what I want to do is um, I'm going to look at two, two really big things, two really big ideas. And it's going to seem really disjointed because the first part is about Judas and some of the lessons we can learn from his life. And then I'm going to switch over and change gears to how God uses uh, Judas's death and his suicide and some of the things that happened there to fulfill some of his prophecies. I couldn't find a really, I guess, smooth way of transitioning to between what seems like two really different topics. So I'm just going to do it and we'll just figure it out. So Matthew 27 verses 3 to 10, I'll read it. This is what it says. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by, be by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Let's pray. Jesus, I just uh, pray in your name that we would, um, we would learn from this text. And God, it's a hard text, but I know that your spirit is very willing and ready to teach. And so we just pray that you'd be faithful and teach us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 
And so let, let's look at some of the things we can learn from Judas's life. And like I said, in the New Testament, Judas, Judas is mentioned over 30 times in five different books, in the Gospels, and then if you guys remember in Acts chapter 1, as they replace him with, um, what's, the, what's the name? I think it was part of the, the quiz last week, or the trivia, Matthias. He's the replacement for Judas. But the unfortunate note about Judas is this. Every single time he's mentioned, he's noted as the betrayer or the one who betrayed Jesus. And this is an awful legacy to live down. Apart from Judas being a betrayer of Jesus, it's also no secret to any of us that Judas ended his life by committing suicide. And like I said before, the topic of Judas often yields a bunch of questions about suicide. One way I think the church has failed on this topic is that we have boiled suicide down to a conversation or a question merely of morality, right? And so the first question we often ask when it comes to suicide is, is it good? Is it bad? Is it a sin, right? Morally speaking, I, I think it is very easy to conclude that suicide is a sin. It's dark, it's painful, it's grievous, it leaves behind a trail of devastation. In our, and in our country, suicide is a sociological emergency, According to Stats Canada, almost 12 people die by suicide every single day in our country. 12 people every single day. That works out to about 4,500 a year. Every single day, there are about 200 reported suicide attempts, with the majority of those attempts being done by boys and men. Suicide is truly a dark and evil thing that should cause us to pause. And um, suicide is something that I guess it's just there, right? It's just kind of part of our society. Just a week, maybe two weeks ago, I had a student come to me and tell me that he had been having suicidal thoughts. Um, I'm on a Facebook group um, that is designed to, to kind of um, help men battle lust. And I opened my phone yesterday, and the first thing that came up was somebody saying, I can't fight anymore. Maybe I should end my life, Right? walking through the LCBO yesterday and I look coming through the doors and I see a young man and um, he looked exactly like Leah's cousin Hunter, who I don't know if you guys remember, took his own life in the summer, right? And so suicide is all around us and even in the, in the, on the lips of the young people uh, walking through the halls, I often hear like, I'm going to kill myself or go kill yourself or it, it's just there, right? And I think we can all conclude that it's a bad thing, but I don't think we really talk about why it happens. I don't think we really talk about spiritually what's going on. I don't think we get into the conversation of how people get there. I think as a church we failed because we like to just say that it's bad and just end there. And so for, for a few minutes, what I want to do is look at the person of Judas. And I, and I understand that suicide is a, is a topic that requires sensitivity and nuance, and of course, there's so many different reasons why people make the choice they make. Um, of course, no two stories are the same. People have various uh, circumstances that lead them to the places that they go. Um, and so I don't want to say that, you know, this is the main reason why all people end up taking their lives. I mean, it's, it's hard to get there, right? But let's look at Judas, because I think we can learn a couple of things at least in his situation, why he ended up taking his life. 
And so the first thing that we see in the scriptures about Judas, like I said before, he is portrayed in a negative light. But the Bible teaches us that Judas loved money, right? And so the most obvious way we know this is because Judas agrees to betray his friend Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And for those who don't know, 30 pieces of silver was equivalent, was, was equal to about four months of wages for a skilled laborer. It's definitely not pocket change. I'm sure any one of us in this room um, would love to have four months, of, four months of wages. That's a lot of money. But still, ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot of money, right? 30 pieces of silver. And so that's the most obvious way we know that Judas um, loves money. But another way we know that Judas loved, mon- loved money is, be- is from John chapter 12. And so you guys remember that story, John 12? They're sitting at uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house, and Mary breaks open a bottle of expensive ointment. And what does she do with it? She pours it on, on his head, and she, and she also uses her hair to anoint his feet, right? And so very expensive uh, ointment. And he do, she does that to bless Jesus, and it's all part of a, a larger story where she's anointing Jesus as he goes towards the cross. But while she's doing this, Judas makes a comment. And this is found in John 12, verses 4 to 5. Of course, Judas, um, he says this. This And this is how John says it. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, brackets, he who was about to betray him, close brackets, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John makes a remarkable comment that if you skip over it, you might miss it. But it's there for a reason, and it's in verse 6. It says, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Right? And so we have two really vivid examples of the love of money that Judas had. The, the, the love of money that Judas has in his life, the sin that he has. I'm not sure if John knew this ahead of time or if this is something that Jesus revealed to him after his resurrection. But John shed some light onto Judas's life, and we see that Judas was a thief. So almost every time people, every time I've been in the presence of a conversation around Judas, there is this assumption that Judas was an innocent man who was tempted near the end of his life to betray Jesus. And later on we see that Satan enters into Judas, who then, and then he goes on to betray Jesus. But I think it's really important for us to back up the truck and, and have a really, say some really true, but you may think harsh things. And so first, the Bible teaches us there's, that there's no such thing as an innocent person, right? The Bible teaches us that we are all sinners and fall short of God's glory, meaning apart from the grace of God, and I say this with sensitivity and tenderness, We all have the capacity within us to betray and deny Jesus, right? We all have the capacity. We all have the sinfulness required. So I don't want us to sit here and and, and conclude that Judas was uh, this great guy who just got, you know, got caught up in a bad situation. And I also don't want us to sit there and be like, how could he, right? We are him in a way. And he is us in a way, right? We, we come from the same gene pool, so to speak. There's no such thing as an innocent person, not him and not us. Second, Judas had a, a track record 
of sin. He loved money. He stole from Jesus, and he tried to hide it by making pious statements about giving to the poor, when in reality, he didn't care about the poor, but he cared about the money that he could have earned himself. And so it's important for us to understand that Judas's love of money led to him being offered money to betray Jesus. This is not an isolated incident for him. Him being offered 30 pieces of silver to deny Jesus was not an isolated incident. He had a track record of the love of money. And so for some of us, maybe we don't struggle as hard with the love of money like our friend Judas here. But my question for us this morning is how many of us would have betrayed Jesus for something else? How many of us would have betrayed Jesus for a nice job or a new home or a position of power or sex? Judas was a sinful person, and so it is for everyone. For Judas, his sinful life led to suicide. This is true for others who commit suicide, but it's also true for those of us who don't commit suicide, right? Sin exists, and it reigns in our bodies, and it reigns in our hearts, and it reigns in our minds. The sin that led Judas to suicide reigns in us today, right? And so that's true of us, and this is a true statement that we need to take home. If we do not give our lives of sin over to Jesus, who offers us forgiveness and eternal life by believing in his death and resurrection, death is the result. Be sure of this, right? Judas' Judas's life ought to act as a, as a shocking reminder of what happens when we trifle with sin. His life is a, is a testimony, it's a, it's a story, and it's a parable of what happens it's an example of what occurs when we do not kill our sin, right? So let's, let's put aside that piece where we're like, Judas is this awful guy who, uh, you know, I would never pause, right? We share the same gene pool. So whether you struggle with the love of money or the love of woman or the love of power or the love of sex or the love of things, the love of yourself, God can use, or Satan would have been able to use any of those things to tempt any of us in the same situation. So Judas had the love of money, and he was a sinful person, and the result of sin is death. That's the first thing. The second thing is the Bible teaches us that even though Judas spent time with Jesus, he was not a believer. And so when Judas finds out that Jesus would be crucified, he's filled with regret. Verse 3 says, he was seized with remorse. And so I think it's important for us to answer this question, right? What does that mean? What does it mean that he was seized with remorse? It's a question. Raise your hand if you've ever been convicted or if you've ever felt bad for something wrong that you've done. Yeah? If we read this passage here alone, we could maybe conclude that Judas experienced what the Bible calls godly sorrow. In one sense, when anyone experiences conviction for their actions, whether they're Christian or not, they experience a type of godly sorrow. Romans 2 um, teaches very clearly on this. Whether you were raised in a religious home with a keen sense of right and wrong or you were raised without the law, all human beings are without excuse because our consciences bear testimony to God's law. His law is written on our hearts, right? Amen? When we break God's law, we know it. And so in that sense, all grief over sin is godly. Anytime anyone feels bad over their sin, it's because of the law of God bearing testimony, bearing, um, just pointing us to the fact that we have broken God's law and showing us 
where we've gone wrong. But in order for us to be right with God, we must understand that it's not just about feeling bad over our actions, but more about what we do next that makes a difference. It's about what we do with that feeling of sorrow and grief after we sin that matters, not the fact that we feel bad. Feeling bad is not enough, right? And so 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 teaches more about this, and this is what he says. This is what Paul says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces what? You know the word? Worldly grief produces what? Death. Worldly grief produces death. And so I think we have to ask what this means. And what I want to, I want to give us, I guess, three steps for how we can know our remorse and our repentance are genuine. So there's three steps. The first one is this, the most obvious one. The first one is we feel conviction. So we understand that we've done something wrong. We understand that we've broken God's law and that we have violated God's character. I think it's possible to say that Judas experienced this because he was seized by remorse. And it might fit into this, but we have to continue on with the next step. So the first step is you feel conviction, right? The second step The scriptures teach us that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. And so what does this mean? It means that godly grief not only brings the feeling of guilt, but it also brings an understanding that we need God's mercy. It brings us to this understanding that without God's mercy and forgiveness, we are condemned. Godly grief leads to a keen sense that only God can save, deliver, and clean us, right? And so this is exactly where Judas goes off the tracks, right? For Judas, he gets the remorse and the feeling, but he does not go to God, right? Where, where does he go instead? He goes to the temple, right? And so that's the second step. The, sec- the third step, after we feel conviction and we understand that we have to go to God, we, the third step is that we actually go to God, and that results into a salvation without regret. And so what that means in layman's terms is that means we believe in faith that when God says we confess our sins, that he is indeed faithful to cleanse us, that we are actually clean, that his forgiveness is ironclad, right? And so genuine repentance yields a real sense of hope that we can indeed continue because God loves us and accepts us, not because we're good, but because Jesus is good. And so we feel conviction. It forces us to God. And then our hope is renewed in him, right? On the other hand, worldly grief produces death. It starts with conviction, but it does not lead to salvation. It does not lead to mercy. It does not lead us back to Jesus, but rather it leads us to a place of hopelessness, a place of regret, a place of darkness and death. Worldly grief does not lead us back to God, but it leads us to death. And so honestly, church, if I were to think really hard and seriously about what it means to be a Christian... People ask me that all the time. What does it really mean to be a Christian? I think that this might be one of the most touchstone and critical experiences that genuine Christians must face in our lifetimes again and again. Going through the real weighty process of conviction that leads us back to God's mercy and cleansing. That's what it means to be a Christian. Amen? We are not Christian because we feel bad about our actions. Being a believer, that's not the sum of what it means to be a believer of Jesus. 
Being, being a believer of Jesus means to feel that conviction, but then to do something, right? It means to throw yourself at God for mercy and to cry out for cleansing and forgiveness. And then to be a Christian means to accept that forgiveness when he does offer it and to walk in that, right? A lot of the times we, we get stuck in these steps, right? We feel the conviction. We feel awful. We feel sorrowful. We feel grief. And maybe we make it past the part where we do go to God, but then we never quite walk away feeling that we're clean, right? We say things to ourselves. Like I used to have a friend that would say, uh, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. I'm like, that's, bro, that's one of the most prideful things I've ever heard in my life, right? What do you, what do you mean you can't forgive yourself? You didn't sin against yourself. <laughs> you sinned against God, God's word tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, right? Right, church? And so I think we get stuck there, but this is really what it means to be a Christian. You know, in Jesus' lesson about uh, prayer on the Sermon on the Mount, we are reminded to ask God daily for, for forgiveness, right? This means that we will surely sin while we're in these bodies of death, right? That much is true, but what makes us genuine Christians is the process here being gripped by conviction, throwing ourselves at our Father for mercy, receiving mercy and cleansing and renewal, being transformed for our future. And so when we read that Judas was seized by remorse, we have to ask ourselves, is this godly grief or worldly grief? And to answer that, we have to look at how Judas handles this sin. And I would ask you to examine your own process as you think about this. So let's go through it. First, Judas goes back to the religious leaders. Now, I don't want us to skip over this. While we're not given the answer, we have to ask ourselves, why does Judas go back to the religious leaders? Is he looking for forgiveness? Is he looking for absolution? Why is he going there? Judas obviously knows that this is not a merely an economic transaction. He says that he has sinned. He has betrayed and he has shed innocent blood. He knows that this is a spiritual issue for him, right? And so he goes back to the religious leaders. He's looking for something. I don't really know what he's looking for, but he's looking for something, right? So that's the first thing he does. The second thing is he returns the silver. And so once again, while we're not giving the direct answer, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why does he return the silver? Judas is obviously filled with remorse. Is he trying to atone for his mistake? Is he trying to not profit off of the shedding of innocent blood? For whatever reason, he returns the silver, Step two. Step three, Judas admits his sin. He says, I have sinned, for I have, be I have betrayed innocent blood. The law written on Judas's heart, combined with the guilt from walking with Jesus for years, knowing him, seeing him, watching him perform miracles, knowing that he is the Son of God, combined with the law, Judas knows that he has transgressed against God. But then what happens after this is grievous, because then... He's turned away by the religious leaders, right? And we'll get into them after because they're, they're a whole, that's a whole grip of other issues. <laughs> but he's turned away from the religious leaders. And so I, I want us to put ourselves in his shoes at this moment, right? He, 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 he knows that he's broken God's law. He's filled with remorse. He's heartbroken. He goes to the temple and he's looking for something. He brings back the money and they say, go away. It's not my problem, Deal with it yourself. And so how would you describe, how, how would you, just put yourself in his shoes for a second. How would you guys feel? 
Hopeless, right? How would you guys feel? What else? It'd be devastating, right? What else do you have at this point, right? And so unfortunately, verse 5, it says that Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas knew what he did was wrong. However, instead of going to God for mercy, Judas went to the religious leaders to return the money. And going to them, he was coldly turned away by wicked men and was forced to face a type of hopelessness that comes from not knowing God. He was forced to face a type of hopelessness that comes from not knowing God. And in that moment, Judas decided that he had no other options but to kill himself. It's tragic, right? It's tragic. Has anyone, anyone here ever felt even temporarily that sense of hopelessness? Yeah? Maybe who here has known a person who's gone through that? Yeah, I mean, it's all around us. It's all around us, and it is in our world, and it's in our society, and it's in our schools, and it's in our neighborhoods. This type of hopelessness is everywhere. And it may even apply to some of us in this room right now. One thing that is hard to wrap um, our heads around would be the disciples' feelings about Judas. This is, up until that day, someone who they would have considered their friend. Judas was called by Jesus during his public ministry, and he traveled with them. He ate with them. He was sent out by Jesus and went out with them to cast out demons and heal the sick. And in the end, Jesus ended up washing Judas' feet. Did you guys know that? Judas was there at his feet, washed by Jesus. And do you guys know what the last thing Jesus called him? Friend. Go and do what you must do quickly, friend. Paraphrase. And so all week, this, this passage really just was sitting really heavy on my heart because I think we have to ask ourselves that question. What, what, what is happening in his life where for years he is walking with Christ? He is witnessing the power and the kindness and the love of Jesus he is watching Jesus up close. He is in Jesus' exclusive group of 12 men. And he is watching them. He was in the boat when Jesus walked on the water, right? He was there both times when Jesus fed thousands of people. He watched the hand of God literally multiply single-digit loaves of bread and single-digit fishes, fish to, to feed literal thousands of men, Right? Not, and it's interesting because it, those texts say that they, if they fed 5,000 or 7,000 men, right? It didn't even include the, the woman and the kids. So they, they were there. He was there. He watched them do it. He was carrying the baskets and doling out food, right? He was there. He watched Jesus do these things. And he walked with other men who wrestled with who Jesus was. And so what weighs heavy on our hearts and what should weigh heavy on all of our hearts is Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. And this is what I would say is one of the most horrifying verses in all of Scripture, but this is what Jesus says. 
He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Judas was there. He prophesied in Jesus' name. He cast out Jesus demons in Jesus' name. And he did many mighty works in Jesus' name. But when push came to shove and Satan entered into him, he was willing to turn away from his friend and turn away from the Son of Man in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. The fact of the matter is that as Christians... We tend to hide in Christian culture. We do Christian things. We go to church. We bring our Bibles. We tithe. We share the gospel. We listen to Christian music. All good things, right? All good things. I'm not saying those are bad things. But we must understand one really key thing. None of these things make us Christian. They are things that Christians do, but they in themselves do not prove that we are genuine believers. Judas spent years around Jesus and his people. Like I said before, he saw powerful things. He was knee-deep in the culture. There are passages that suggest that the disciples didn't even suspect Judas. Yet, it is possible to be around Jesus and his people and to not be close to him at all. It is possible to know all about Jesus, but not to know him at all. Right? We can spend years around him and not know him. Right? You could hear his word and have never heard him if you know what I mean, right? The words can go in your ears, but they cannot go in your heart. And so, church, I pray that as each and every single one of us journey through life, that we would do it not as a person who has been around Jesus, but as a person who knows Jesus, that as we experience sorrow over our sin, that we would not be driven to an idea, but to a person who offers you and I not just mercy, but himself, right? Jesus doesn't just give us stuff. He gives us himself, it's the person who he gives us. I pray that you would not feel hopeless, but that you would experience salvation again and again as you experience union with Jesus himself. All of these things, I'm not saying that any of these things, all of these powerful truths just erase and get rid of thoughts of suicide. But what I do know is when we look at the life of Judas who had unchecked sin, who was around God but did not know him, who went to people for help and did not receive it, I think we can see that there's some similarities, right, in the lives of those who struggle with suicidal ideations or who have even, um, have even gone the full length and have, have taken their lives. Massive sin, a relationship with God that's not there, that results in deep hopelessness and, and sorrow and grief because they don't know what to do with their brokenness, right? And deep loneliness, right? Looking for help and not being able to find it. The life of Judas is a map. And I'm not saying that every single person's life follows the exact same map, but I think if we were to be honest and if we, if we knew people in our life, maybe there's people here who have had suicidal thoughts or tendencies, we could say, yeah, I see some similarities in my life or I see some similarities in the life of Judas that, that look like mine or look like a friend of mine. You know, there is sin that they can't handle. There is grief that they can't process. 
there's hopelessness that they can't deal with, and there's no one to go to, right? That was true for Judas, and I just pray that as the church, we would be people who not only uh, bring people to the good news, but that we would bring people to the good person of Jesus, right? To help battle that hopelessness and that loneliness. So I hope that the person of Judas is encouraging to us in the sense that we get some semblance or some understanding of what happens when people take their lives, right? Of course, we could keep talking about that afterwards. It's definitely a significantly larger conversation than just a message. I would love to hear from you guys afterwards, and we could talk about that. But anyways, that's Judas. And so now I'm going to change topics completely. And in closing, I want us to look at the evil actions of the religious leaders, but also marvel at God's sovereign hand as he uses evil for good. And so I ask the question again, why did Judas feel the need to go to the religious leaders in his time of sin and conviction? In his desperation, we see here again in verses 3 to 7 that Judas goes to the religious leaders. And so as a religious man, I imagine that Judas went to the religious people to get an answer for his sin. However, while he was hoping for spiritual guidance, what he got instead was other people who also loved money, perhaps even more than him. And was met with one of the most upsetting scenes in the Bible. After admitting his sin, we see that their answer is cold and evil. They say, what is it to us? See to it yourself. We've been studying the Gospel of Matthew for some time now. And have seen some pretty awful things from the religious leaders for sure. That being said, I still find myself asking God, why? Why are they like this? Why in this story are you allowing this to happen? Why Judas? Why the religious leaders? Why all of the evil and the betrayal? This is a very important question to ask for us, church, as we live in the last days awaiting Jesus' return. And as Christians, we have to ask the question, why? And we have to wrestle with the fact that while things may look dark and grim, God is indeed working sovereignly to accomplish his purposes. And so somehow in this story of darkness and religious leaders turning Judas away and Judas receiving 30 pieces of silver in exchange for um, Jesus' life and his location, we have to understand that God is working in this story. And so while it looks like God is up against the ropes, I want us to look at a few of the ways God was sovereignly working to bring salvation to his people. All of this, all of this that we, we heard today, all of this was designed to get Jesus to the cross. And next week, Chris is going to continue as we see that path be more, uh, I guess, to see Jesus walk down that path uh, willingly, lovingly, laying aside the power that he has where he could call down a legion of angels at any time to just absolutely decimate his enemies. But the way he holds back and he allows himself to go to the cross, that's the path we're on here. And so all of this today is one step on that path. And so I want us to look at some of the ways that God was sovereignly working here. And so first we see that the betrayal of Judas is a fulfillment of Psalm 41 verse 9. And this is David speaking. And David says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And so this was confirmed in John chapter 13, 18. When Jesus spoke of being betrayed by Judas, the one who Jesus ate with and even whose feet he washed. Betrayal in the gospel is a character. 
and it is an important character to, to note because without the portrayal of Christ, none of this happens. It's a hard pill to swallow because I think at times we wish that we could pretty up the gospel story. But bent into this story, built into the story, baked into the story is terrible deceit and betrayal. And this is why the historians and the theologians say that this is one of the most heinous, that this is the most heinous sin ever committed in human history. The innocent Jesus led to the cross to suffer um, on the most insane human torture device ever created. God's own creation killing the, what does Peter say? The author of life, right? Acts 3. So that's the first way. This is all a fulfillment of Psalm 41.9. And this is one of the many ways that Jesus in, in the gospel fulfills um, David and Moses and a whole bunch of other stuff in the Old Testament. So that's the first one. The second one is this whole scene with Judas is a fulfillment of Exodus 21.32 and Zechariah 11. And so I'm going to give you guys the extreme Coles Note version of the Zechariah account because it probably deserves, you know, a, a multi-week message to unpack. But Zechariah, for those who don't know, is an Old Testament prophet. And he, I, I would say the book of Zechariah is like a mini version of the, of the book of Daniel. It is largely apocalyptic in nature. I would say that it is one of the Old Testament versions of Revelation. And so the whole book of Zechariah, chapters 1 to 9, are a collection of visions that Zechariah uh, sees about the end of times. And if you read that and you read Revelation, you'd swear you were reading the exact same book because the imagery and the illustrations are almost one-to-one -one in terms of the things that are being portrayed to the prophet Zechariah. But we get to Zechariah 11. And so in real life, this is not a vision. God sends the prophet Zechariah to be a shepherd over a flock of sheep. And during this time, while Zechariah is being a faithful shepherd, he notices that there are three other specific shepherds who are also part of the flock who have been known to neglect and not take care of the sheep. And so over a one-month span, Zechariah kills those three prophets. He kills them. And so um, after doing this, and there's lots to discuss there, those three Shepherds represent uh, the different offices within Israel, and there's a lot of symbolism there to unpack. But after killing those three shepherds, God commands Zechariah to ask the owners of the flocks, the sheep traders, to pay him whatever wages they think he is worth. And so he goes and he says, pay me whatever you think I'm worth um, for my wages. And this is what um, Zechariah 11:12 says. It says, they weighed out my wages 30 pieces of silver. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why 30 pieces of silver? This specific portion was a fulfillment of Exodus 21:32, And so, you know, we get into Exodus. I know sometimes we start our Bible plans. We get into the book of Exodus and you start getting down into the back half of it. And then you get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. And we start to get bored, right? Because it's like, oh, this is, these are all these like Old Testament rules and so there's one rule, Exodus 21, 32, and it talks about what happens if, uh, let's say Chris owns an ox, and then his ox gores and takes out the eye of my slave, right? But then most of us in this room would say, that is way too obscure. <laughs> 
I can't relate to that. <laughs> that has nothing to do with today. This was considered the, the most low-level offense in Israel. And so if Chris's oxen, or ox, sorry, gored my slave and, and killed him or tuck his eye out or maimed him or injured him in any capacity, how many pieces of silver would he owe me? 30 pieces of silver. This was the lowest level of repayment that was in Israel at the time. And so the payment to Zechariah was 30 pieces of silver because it was the lowest amount of money that could be paid out. Zechariah says, as the shepherd, how much do you think I am worth? And they say, the minimum payment, the cost of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. And so let's fast forward back into Jesus's time. And I want us to reread Judas's interaction with the chief priest in Matthew 26, verses 14 to 15. It says this, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ what happened, fulfilled what happened in Zechariah 11, which was the fulfillment of what happened in Exodus 21. When Judas asks what the Savior is worth, what is the Savior worth? What is the shepherd worth? The chief priest pay him 30 pieces of silver, the cost of a slave. It's truly remarkable that we serve a God who is not reacting to the times, but rather is sovereignly executing his plan to a T. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we see that came before. So when you read Exodus and you read this obscure story or Leviticus or Deuteronomy and you read these obscure stories of, you know, slaves getting injured and why are there even slaves, you may ask. That's not relevant or oxen or pigeon or whatever. And you may, like, this is too random. Why is this all written here? I assure you that it was there for a reason. And God in his sovereign plan, whether we understand it, and I don't think we have the, the full scope of understanding what happened and why it happened, but as we unpack all of these things, we have to see that our God is in control. And so who here feels discouraged because of the times? Who here reads the news and, 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 or watches videos or, or sees Twitter, which is a, a dumpster fire? Who, who here who here? pays attention to what's happening in the world and feels discouraged. Well, I say to you this morning, our God is in control. And I don't say that as a whimsical, uh, I don't say that as, a, as, a, as, a, as just a, a trope, a Christian thing to say that our God is in control. But if this story is of any example to us, there are details that are working out in our lives that we have no idea about, right? And we go about our days, we put our, right leg in our pants and our left leg in our pants. I'm not saying God is there orchestrating every single, well, you know, today I'm going to do my left leg. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying God is there controlling the, the tiny little minutiae of everything. But I can assure you when it comes to this world and when it comes to the darkness and when it comes to the sin that is happening, our God sees, our God knows, our God is working things out according to his plan. And just like he did where he brought Jesus into the world to fulfill prophecy, he has a whole bunch that he hasn't fulfilled yet. And just like he did it the first time, he's going to do it the second time. And the next time he does it, that's it, right? Because after that, 
what does Jesus say? The next time you will see me, I will be coming on the clouds in power, right? And that's when we will see the rest of the, the fulfillment of, of Jesus' plan. So let's close in prayer. I hope those two segments weren't too confusing. It's kind of jammed into those seven verses, but I trust that the Holy Spirit can teach us and encourage us. So let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word. I just pray that you would give us a hunger for your word as we see these passages that are not just one-dimensional, but they are multi-dimensional. You are telling a historic story of your son Jesus and what he did as he went to the cross, but then we also see the fulfillment of Zechariah, and the, which is the fulfillment of Exodus. God, we, we, we just we submit to you and we humble ourselves in front of you because we, 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 we don't know what we don't know. And God, as we look at how you have all these plans and these things that you're working out, we see in the midst of that significant pain. We saw that in the life of Judas. We see that in the lives of those around us. God, I just pray that we would be faithful to you. And God, even if we betray you, even if we sin against you, I pray that we would not be like Judas who left hopeless, but that we would be like Peter who also denied you but was restored by you because he trusted you and sought to love you. Make us those people. In Jesus' name we pray.